how should nations today be developing their game plans to compete in what Chris you've called the chip war? for nations thinking about their game plan, the first question to think through is where in the supply chain they've got a competitive advantage. I think far too often political leaders only focus on the manufacturing and miss the rest of the supply chain. I want to move to India. What's your assessment of how India's fresh entry into the semiconductor world? India has more chip designers than any other country in the world already. And I think the next step is to turn its expertise in chip design into big companies. India is also, if it plays its cards right, has a chance to uh, win some of the market share that China will lose uh, as a result of this decoupling. Welcome to today's episode uh, of the Great Tech Game podcast. Today, I'm delighted and excited to have with me Chris Miller, who's a fellow Harvard alum, uh, who then turned to the dark side and went to Yale. (laughs) Um, He's an associate professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and author of three books on Russia, I believe, and more recently, the author of a book called Chip War, the fight for one of the world's most critical technologies. And so I'm excited to have Chris here with me today. Uh, so welcome, Chris. Well, thank you very much for having me. No, thank you uh, for taking the time. Uh, you know, in various book talks and podcasts that you've done since your book came out, and if I may, took the world by storm and the semiconductor industry placed them right in the center of the world map. You've outlined the importance geopolitically and geoeconomically of the semiconductor industry. For those who are unfamiliar with Chris's work still, uh, I request you to take a look at any of the various book talks and podcasts you'll find on YouTube, Spotify, etc. And today, instead of repeating all of the pieces that Chris has spoken about from his book, uh, we want to dive in into a very specific question, which is not a very small question by any means, but an important one nevertheless, which is, how should nations today be developing their game plans to compete in what, Chris, you've called the chip war? And to start with that, I wanted to give a little bit of context So, about why I want to dig into that question in particular. In my own book, uh, Chris, uh, The Great Tech Game, uh, Shaping Geopolitics and the Destinies of Nations, I make an argument which is in many ways similar to one that I think underlies your book as well, which is that today technology... You obviously mentioned semiconductor industry in particular as the most critical of those technologies. How technology is today shaping the geopolitics and geoeconomics of our world. And the second piece of my argument in my book is that nations as a result, now much like in the industrial era in the past or the trading era or the colonial era or the agri eras in the past, need a game plan to compete in what I call the great tech game, but you've called it uh, in the case of the semiconductor industry, the chip war. And to me, if countries need to compete in that, they've got to have a game plan. And it's obvious also to me that that game plan cannot be a one-size-fits-all game plan, at least from the broader perspective of technology. Now, so the question for you, Chris, to get us started is, based on your extensive history of how various nations of the last several decades have thought of their game plans to lead and compete in the chip war, how should nations be thinking of their game plan today? What are some of the key elements of that framework that they should be thinking about? 
Well, first off, thanks so much for, for having me on the podcast and, and really looking forward to this conversation. I, I think for nations thinking about their game plan, the first question to think through is where in the supply chain they've got a competitive advantage because the chip supply chain is not only about making chips, it's about designing them, it's about packaging them, it's about testing them, it's about producing the chemicals and software machine tools that are used in the production process. And I think far too often political leaders only focus on the manufacturing and miss the rest of the supply chain. And that's a mistake for a couple of reasons. Um, first is that it's often the case that the best businesses are not in the manufacturing, but in other segments of the supply chain. Chip design businesses, for example, are uh, often just as profitable or more profitable than uh, chip manufacturing. And so in some cases, it's better off to focus uh, on uh, other segments of the supply chain for purely business reasons. The, the second reason why it's important to focus on the entire supply chain is because different countries, I think, have different competitive advantages in different segments. Um, countries with big expertise in, uh, or deep pools of expertise in uh, software design, for example, are probably more likely to be uh, have a compared advantage when it comes to chip design, given the similarities between software design and, and chip design, whereas companies with big chemicals industries might have a compared advantage in producing chip making chemicals uh, as well. And, and no country does the entire supply chain alone. So specialization is inevitably part of the process and thinking about where countries have a comparative advantage in specialization is critical. And the third reason is that uh, every other country is devising their own national strategy right now. And so you've got to think not, and so there's competitive dynamics too. You've got to think not just where's your competitive advantage, but also where are other people investing? And does that make a given segment of the industry? And where are there gaps? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. And so that, that's a key part of the challenge is looking at the entire competitive landscape. Correct. And, you know, in a, in a episode, I think it was a podcast or just a video interview of yours with the CEO of Intel, I heard you mention a very interesting piece. You know, as various countries around the world now realizing the importance of semiconductors, some more than others, are starting to devise their own national game plans. One of the key strategies that countries are adopting is uh, this this version, modern day version of an industrial policy. And one of the things that I heard you mention was that whether it's the US with its chip side, whether it's Europe, whether it's other countries around the world, as different countries develop some version of an industrial policy or a game plan, the key will become implementation. So beyond strategy, which you've spoken about, on the implementation side, uh, what are some of the things that governments will need to make sure that they get right in order to get their overall implementation right? Because as we know, there's many a slip between cup and lip when it comes to strategy and then implementation. Well, I think that that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the key challenges in the chip industry, probably true in, in many industries, but certainly here is that the, the hardest part of implementation is devising a business model that's viable. And devising business models is something that governments are poorly placed to do. And so I think governments need to be cognizant of their limitations and design policies that are not intended to dictate business models to the private sector, not intended to tell firms you must do X or you must do Y, but rather provide an environment in which companies can do their own experimentation, do their own testing, do their own product design and market fit assessments and, and devise businesses accordingly. And I think that's tricky for governments because if they're spending substantial sums of money, they want control over how that money gets spent. But there's a risk of trying to have too much control and therefore restraining businesses' flexibility, which they need to devise effective businesses. And, and you know, the four pieces that, if I may 
pick up on uh, some of the other things I've heard you talk about on the implementation side. You mentioned vision. You'd mentioned whether you're putting money behind the right projects, right? You've mentioned whether there are the appropriate monitoring structures to make sure that that money is being spent correctly and the projects are being implemented successfully. And then, of, and then an underlying piece, which is while you're spending that sometimes large amounts of money in the short term to have a view on the long-term impact. Talk to us a little bit more about these three or four pieces that I think are very relevant to ensuring good implementation. Well, maybe to start with the short term versus long term, you know, I think it's 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 relatively straightforward for governments if they're willing to spend money to get an immediate result. If you pay companies to build factories, they will build factories. If, if you pay companies to sell certain types of products in a given region, they'll sell those products. But it's harder to get companies to do things after government spending has dried up. And successful programs are those that not only have an impact right away, but those that also have this longer run impact. And so governments have to think carefully about their time horizons uh, and structure programs so that they're not solely dependent on uh, incentives being provided or cash being handed to companies, but also they're setting up an ecosystem in which companies can have financially viable, economically viable, long run business models, even after governments are no longer directly subsidizing. Now, of course, that's easier said than done, right? I mean, you've you've made a very important point, but that much like in any other industry, you know, countries thinking about developing their own startup ecosystems, for example, are often faced with that particular requirement in a way, but easier said than done. Have you seen any country, especially in recent years or decades, pull that off well? And what, what worked in that case? Well, I think Taiwan is a, a great example of success in this sphere. Um, the Taiwanese government uh, tried very hard not just to focus on specific companies, although they did do some of that, but also to focus on the broader ecosystem. So, for example, they invested very heavily in training programs, developing a large cadre of trained semiconductor engineers. They tried to attract both foreign investment and domestic investment into the industry by making the regulatory and tax environment very favorable to investment. Uh, to make manufacturing more straightforward, they set up big industrial parks uh, that had all the water and the power and the chemicals hookups already for companies that all companies had to do was build their new facilities. And so all of these steps were not about helping individual companies. They were about helping an environment, helping create an environment that was very amenable to investment in the chip industry. And that meant that when the Taiwanese government did invest in specific companies, those companies were already primed to do well because there was already this ecosystem in place. The environment was already set up and companies had a very fertile environment in which to grow. Absolutely. I think that that's a great example, obviously. Uh, and I think some of the key elements that you've outlined to get to get the government intervention right here. Um, of course, we've been talking government, 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 but often nation or national game plans do not equal government alone. Uh, you know, there's the public sector, of course, but then there's the private sector here and also research slash academia as a key element of a national game plan. Tell us how do we, how do countries, how should countries be thinking about getting the right balance to be struck between these, at least these three sectors. And if I'm missing any other key sectors here or other key pieces here, uh, that as well then. How do you get that balance right between these yeah. sectors? Yeah, well, I think academia is indeed a, a, one of the key sectors. And for academia, I think there's a, a balance to be struck within academic institutions. On, on the one hand, you want cutting edge research and that's what universities are primed to produce. But industry also needs large numbers of well-trained personnel. And so I think in many ways, 
universities tend to overemphasize the importance of research relative to the, the importance of training. Um, because from companies' perspectives, if you're building up a new industry, you need lots and lots of well-trained engineers. Um, and so there's often, I think, an underemphasis on the importance of training large numbers of skilled personnel. And that's something universities can do, but they need to have the resources and the institutions uh, that are designed to do that. On the business side, I think a key role that business plays is not only in founding new companies, but also in connecting customers with these companies. And businesses, I think, have a unique view, a unique lens into where is the demand for semiconductors, for example, in the future. And so if you look at auto companies or computing companies, they already understand the trends in their industry. They understand what chip demand will look like in five or 10 years time. And so often more effectively than government or universities, they can try to match this demand with new supply. And so they play a critical role in understanding where is the market going to be once new businesses are founded. Absolutely. And I think on the research side, for a country that is not necessarily a big player in the semiconductor industry yet and is looking to enter, which of these three need to be prioritized first? The public sector interventions, the private sector vision setting and consumer demand understanding or the academia research? I mean, ideally, you would have all three develop together, but that's, of course, yeah. a monumental task. If you had to sequence it out in some way, how would you do that? Well, I, I think the, the, the key challenge at first is finding a, a product market fit, um, because for most cu countries entering this industry, you don't start at the absolute cutting edge. You start somewhat below that and build up over time. That's the natural way to develop. And so to do that, you need to find a situation in which a new company or a new ecosystem can sell to an existing market that needs those products. And that's where businesses play an absolutely critical role. Government can help fund that, it can help create an environment for that, but you've got to have a market for your product. Uh, and I think that's, that's a role for businesses to play. Um, and that's something that governments often struggle with because government officials aren't trained to think about markets. They don't do a good job at it. That's not their um, their responsibility on a regular basis. And so we can't uh, expect them to, to be effective in thinking about uh, products and thinking about markets. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now that we've spent a few minutes, Chris, on the broader framework or the broader set of elements that are required to get a game plan going and get it right and getting its implementation right, I want to dig in into the strategies of some countries and sort of take a quick world tour and see how countries are evolving their strategies uh, in the chip war, right? Uh, let's start with the US. Uh, how over the last two, three years in particular, are you seeing the US evolve its chip sort of semiconductor strategy compared to maybe the decades that came before the last two, three years when geopolitics suddenly has become right front and center in this uh, industry? Well, I think for a long time, the U.S. assumed that so long as it had a technological edge, it would also have a commercial edge. Um, and that assumption, I think, has been uh, undermined the past several years by two factors, both by the uh, spread out of the supply chain. And so today, leading U.S. chip firms are reliant on suppliers in Taiwan and in uh, the Netherlands and in Japan. No country can do it alone. And that means supply chains are more complex but also because in China, there's been just an extraordinarily large wave of government subsidies coming in that have been begun to reshape the industry and uh, eliminated the prior situation where there was a pretty level playing field between different countries. And now there's a highly unlevel playing field. And so the US government has decided it needs to become much more active in providing financial support for chip manufacturing in the US, which it had never really done before 
at any scale. And so the CHIPS Act, which is spending uh, $39 billion in direct funding for chip making projects in the US is really something quite new for the chip industry. Um, and uh, it's intended to bolster the manufacturing share uh, of the chip industry in the United States, which is something that the US has historically been less focused on. Design, software, machine tools, those, those have been the US strengths in recent decades. And so the US government is trying to change this via direct financial incentives. Right. And of course, the other piece of the US strategy, which seems to be coming up more and more now in the last year or two is export controls vis-a-vis -vis its primary geopolitical competitor, China. Is your sense that this export control driven strategy, because there are both you know people in favor of that and there are people who are not so much in favor of that. Where do you stand on this? Like, Is this export control driven element of the US strategy to deny chip technology to, you know, especially China, is that going to undermine U.S. efforts to retain global leadership or will that fully assist its efforts to both commercially and technologically lead this industry? Well, I think in, in some ways the export controls are on a somewhat different track than the CHIPS Act funding. The CHIPS Act is is really more commercially focused. It's about more uh, building more manufacturing businesses in the US, whereas the export controls are really primarily security driven in focus about restraining China's technological advances precisely about the concern that they might be deployed for military or intelligence use cases. But there are a lot of interlinkages between the two, as you say. I think that the export controls, which are, are, are US, but also Japanese and and Dutch and impact uh, Taiwanese and uh, Korean chip makers as well are, are almost certainly imposing costs on uh, Chinese chip makers and will impose more costs as time passes uh, because the tools that are needed to make chips are today exclusively produced by the US, Japan, and the Netherlands. Uh, China has very, very small market share and only in um, uh, tools that are far from the cutting edge. Uh, and so I think we're in the early stages, to be honest, of these tech restrictions. I think they're going to last for uh, years, if not longer perhaps decades, uh, and the costs of them will uh, will grow over time uh, as they become uh, more significant and as time passes. Correct. And so if you're China now, if you're a policymaker or a tech strategist sitting in Beijing and you're seeing this export control driven strategy, uh, you're seeing the chips act and the amount of money that's now being given to private sector companies in the US, which is unlike before, you're seeing the emphasis on R&D and great amounts of money being put into R&D as part of the CHIPS Act. As a Chinese policymaker, what do you do? Yeah, I, th I think China's response thus far has been to double down on the strategy it's been pursuing since 2014. So in, in 2014, the Chinese government uh, first identified CHIPS as what they call a core technology and set out a series of industrial policy plans, the most famous of which is Made in China 2025. And the aim of these plans uh, is to make China more self-sufficient in semiconductor. And so today, China spends as much money each year importing chips, it spends importing oil. It's an extraordinary vulnerability. Uh, and China's trying to build up the capacity to produce the chips it needs at home. And I think what we've seen since the export controls were put in place is that China's continuing with the strategy, uh, spending tens of billions of dollars a year in government subsidies at the national, provincial, and local level, uh, and also increasingly accepting lower quality products at home if they're domestically made. Um, and so this is a strategy that, again, has a long history in China, um, but I think it has been somewhat intensified by the sense that China and the U.S. are in a long run competition and China's got to domesticate more of its key technology. And do you think that will work? 
Well, I think the question of whether it works depends on how much technological backwardness and how much additional cost you're willing to, um, to pay. Uh, if China is willing to pay tens of billions of dollars a year, it can certainly gain self-sufficiency. If China is willing to accept worse smartphones, worse computers, worse data centers than the rest of the world, it can certainly gain self-sufficiency. And so the question is not going to be, will it work, yes or no, but at what cost to China? What cost is China willing to bear in terms of dollars spent and in terms of technological backwardness? And self-sufficiency, accepting lower quality, all of these things don't seem to me to be the right national game plan to compete and win in the chip war, maybe survive, but not necessarily win. Well, I, I think that's right. And I, I think that's why, you know, Xi Jinping would make a bad semiconductor CEO, um, but he's not a semiconductor CEO. <laughs> he's the, the general secretary of the Communist <laughs> Party. And I think, you know, the general secretaries have different incentives, uh, different priorities, and therefore he's had a different game plan than he would if he were running a private company. One of the key rumblings, you know, one has seen uh, from China that might impact the rest of the world and the semiconductor industry outside of China is its dominance on the rare earth element set. Do you think that could be an effective counter strike against uh, the U.S. export control strategy on the chip technology side? Well, we've we've seen China um, make some threats in that sphere over the past couple of months, both in terms of rare earth elements and also in terms of gallium and germanium, which are two other materials needed in chip making. The challenge that China faces is that many of the uses of both rare earths and gallium and germanium are in chips that are or chips or electronics that are produced abroad and then sent back to China for assembly. There are lots of jobs in China that depend on this trade back and forth. And then Chinese consumers are also large users of many of the communications devices, for example, that require gallium and germanium. And there's no way that China can simply impose costs on the West by cutting off gallium and germanium experts, for example, without also imposing costs on China. So it's not a very targeted retaliatory tool. It would hurt everyone, China included. And I think that's why China has threatened retaliation, but has not actually retaliated uh, via uh, these types of minerals thus far. But one could argue that there would be similar costs that the U.S. would need to incur once uh, the U.S. has put all of these export controls in place as well, right? Because China, of course, has been a large exporter yep. of many of these electronic goods, etc., at cheaper costs than might otherwise get manufactured in other parts of the world. You know, I, I think that, that dynamic exists, but the magnitudes are different. So if you look, for example, at the effort to shift assembly of devices outside of China towards Vietnam, towards India, towards Thailand, uh, it's, it's probably true that costs are slightly higher than in China. But actually, Chinese wages have been rising rapidly. Um, and uh, in many cases, Vietnam or Thailand are very efficient places to assemble electronics as well. And so the cost differential doesn't seem to be that substantial. Companies are, are willing to pay it or are able to pass it on to consumers. It hasn't been that dramatic. So, so yes, there are costs involved in the, the Western effort, but they're smaller in magnitude, I think, uh, more dispersed and therefore more uh, palatable for political leaders than the cost that China would face for its, uh, its China, territory. Yeah. Let's talk about Europe, right? So when, when you think about, when one thinks about Europe in this chip war, um, of course, ASML comes to mind. But does Europe have a broader game plan here than just ASML? Well, I think that the challenge in talking about Europe is that there are different players in Europe. There's the European Union as a whole, which has a strategy. There's the key member states like Germany, like the Netherlands, like France, uh, and they have different interests uh, and therefore different strategies. 
So if you're the Netherlands right now, you have both ASML, which is the most important uh, machine tool maker in Europe, but you also have a series of, of very successful chip makers like NXP um, who are, are already doing quite well. And so the Netherlands doesn't feel a need to dramatically change chip policy because it's Good. succeeding. Good. If you're don't, Germany, don't fix what's not broken. Correct. Well, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. If, if you're Germany, however, you have just survived uh, two years of debilitating chip shortages, which have hurt your largest industry, the auto industry. Auto industry, and so, right. and so as Germany thinks about semiconductors, it's thinking less about semiconductors and more about the cars that are big consumers of semiconductors. And so a lot of German chip policy is actually derivative of auto policy. It's a desire to strengthen the supply chain that produces cars. And so that's very different from the way, for example, the Netherlands thinks about the chip industry. So Netherlands is more of a supplier of technology and inputs into the global supply chain, whereas you're seeing the German sector is more to make sure that it doesn't get adversely affected by disruptions in supply. What about France? France has, has similar incentives to Germany. There are big uh, French car makers that were disrupted, uh, aviation firms that were disrupted during the chip shortages. Uh, and so in France as well, uh, the investment that's happened has been partly about technological leadership, but much more about supply chain resilience. I'm going to, it's an, maybe an obvious question, but I want to ask you it nevertheless. If TSMC's monopoly is such a cause of geopolitical worry today, why is ASML's monopoly on the equipment side not as much of a geopolitical worry? Well, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, speaking with some, uh, some uh, people from the Netherlands recently. They said, you know, people don't often realize, but the, the primary ASML facility and Eindhoven is only 70 meters above sea level. So as sea levels rise, perhaps we should be worried about ASML's production too. Um, but I, I think the fact that ASML's uh, key supply chains are in Europe and in the US, their key manufacturing facilities are in the Netherlands, in Germany, in uh, Connecticut, in the US, and California, um, gives both European and US policymakers a fair amount of confidence that there won't be geopolitical disruptions to the uh, the ASML supply chain. There have been accidents. Last year, uh, there was a fire in an ASML facility that caused some disruptions. But the type of catastrophic um, uh, disruption that one can imagine around China and Taiwan is much harder to imagine in a supply chain focused on the Netherlands, Germany, and the United States. Let's, let's hop over to East Asia. Uh, now that we've spoken about uh, Europe and the US, um, if you're a Japan or a Korea today, right? how are you perceiving there have been concerns that have been raised in Japan and Korea about the onshoring strategy that the US seems to be at least toying with? If you're Japan and Korea today and you're looking out in the long run, how are you thinking about remaining relevant, competitive, and leaders in the chip wall, let's say even 20 years from now? Well, I think the, the Japanese have a different dynamic than Korea and Taiwan. Japan has seen its share of uh, world chip making decline over the past several decades, even though Japan retains a lot of expertise in the machine tools and also the chemicals that are used for chip making. So Japan has been trying to reverse its declining market share of chip production as a way of shoring up its chip industry writ large. And Japanese policymakers believe that unless they've got a sizable chip manufacturing industry, they won't have an ecosystem that's capable of continuing to support the machine tool industry, the chemicals industry. And so Japan has been subsidizing TSMC, the Taiwanese firm, to build 
a new facility in Kumamoto Prefecture. I've also um, provided funds for a number of other chip firms to start up operations or expand operations in Japan. For, for Korea and Taiwan, it's somewhat different because they're already huge producers of semiconductors. The challenge for them is, first off, retaining their market share in manufacturing, but also to find other parts of the value chain where they can play a role. And I think uh, Taiwan has had more success in this than Korea. Taiwan has several big chip design firms like MediaTek, for example, alongside of its chip manufacturers, whereas Korea has struggled in chip design and would very much like to break into that industry because, as we mentioned at the outset, it's a very profitable, uh, high-value-add industry. And so both of those countries are trying to keep their manufacturing businesses as healthy as possible, but also to diversify elsewhere in the supply chain. That's right. And now I, I want to move to India. Now, India, of course, over the last, I would say, a few years now, a couple of years, has realized that it might have missed the boat on the semiconductor industry. There were efforts in the 1980s in India to kickstart the semiconductor industry that didn't quite gain much traction. But now the last few years, realizing both the geopolitical and the geoeconomic importance of this industry, India has, of course, now said, let's focus on this and get this, get this going now. What's your assessment of how India is approaching its re-entry or fresh entry into the semiconductor world? Well, I, I think to understand India's position and its approach right now, we need to think of both the semiconductor industry and the electronics assembly industry simultaneously, because what we're seeing is investment in both of those segments right now, and they're directly linked with each other. Um, so on, on the one hand, the Indian government has been uh, trying to provide additional incentives uh, for chip making uh, in India, as well as in chip packaging and assembly. And one of the reasons why that's uh, attractive to uh, foreign firms to consider is because they also realize that India is growing as a location of device assembly, and therefore its demand for chips for phones or for PCs or for autos is also going to grow. And so there's a, a direct relationship between the, the growth in device assembly and demand growth for semiconductor package and test and semiconductor uh, fabrication uh, in India. I think for a, a country uh, like India, there's um, a easier sell for multinationals to invest in assembly and packaging and tests than in fabrication. Fabrication is more capital intensive. The market's more competitive uh, in some ways. And so India has had more success thus far in winning big announcements from companies uh, at those segments of the supply chain. But it's clear the Indian government is very committed uh, to, to, to supporting fabrication um, as well. And there's a number of um, large companies that are actively exploring uh, this prospect. And, and as they look at growth in end demand for semiconductors in India, as the assembly base grows out, that's a very rational uh, business to begin uh, exploring because as you assemble more goods and as you pack more semiconductors, you'll have growing demand for semiconductors in India as well. Yeah, it goes back to the question I'd asked you about, you know, which of the three sectors in a way you would prioritize and you'd mentioned business, use case, consumer demand. And it seems to me that what you're just describing fits into that uh, framework where the business and consumer use case is driving where the semiconductor niche uh, is being picked in India. India is also looking at design. In addition to the assembly and packaging and the chip fabrication, which might come slightly later down the line, India is also looking at chip design. To your point earlier about if you have software design skill sets in the company in the country, then of course chip design also becomes an attractive extension of your work. Is that your sense as well that India could become a key player in the chip design 
a piece of the supply chain? Well, I, th I think that is a, a real possibility. And in some ways, it's already the case. I've, I've, I've heard it said that India has more chip designers than any other country in the world already. Um, and I think the next step um, is to turn um, its expertise in chip design into big companies. Um, and so that that's something that Taiwan has been relatively successful at, might provide a, a pathway for thinking about ways to turn expertise into uh, very successful companies. I, my sense is that the chip design ecosystem has gotten less government attention in India than uh, fabrication and assembly. And that's true of many governments. Many governments think first about manufacturing and less about design. And I think uh, governments need to think carefully about design because um, especially in a place like India, where there already is a comparative advantage with the uh, software engineering expertise, uh, chip design is not capital intensive. Uh, and therefore, it's much easier to start new businesses than in uh, segments of the industry that require multiple billion of dollars in upfront costs. It's what you've called, I think, the fabulous revolution. In a way, what the U.S. was doing, as you were saying earlier, what the U.S. was almost focusing on, on the fabulous design piece, um, it's almost that strategy, that, that niche that could work well for India. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and the challenge is going to be right now, most Indian ship designers are ship designers that work at foreign firms. So most of the big U.S. ship designers, for example, have big offices in India, um, MediaTek, uh, other ship designers. And so the challenge is going to be finding segments of the industry where new firms can be created that will win substantial uh, market share, because that's ultimately how you capture value uh, in the chip design industry. Absolutely. How much is the macro environment in the world supporting India's efforts at building its own semiconductor strategy? One of the very interesting things I think you mentioned in your book when we were talking about Korea a few decades ago is that Samsung's own rise in the semiconductor industry is aided by Silicon Valley, who wants to build up a competitor to Japan at the time. Right? Um, how much of this kind of macro geopolitical geoeconomic rumblings that we're seeing in the world do you think will assist India's own rise in the semiconductor industry over the next decade or two? I think it's hugely important. And we've, we've seen uh, the US, Japan, Taiwan all uh, increase their uh, partnership with India in the tech space in particular. And leaders from all of those countries, both at the business level and the government level, have identified semiconductors as a space for cooperation uh, with India. That's one of the reasons why there's been a number of big announcements over the past year of new investments in both the assembly and the uh, test and package uh, landscape. So I think that's quite important. It's also important on the on the side of the Indian government, because Indian policy is also looking at China in economic terms and in geopolitical terms and concerned about excessive dependencies. And so Indian government policy has been quite supportive of building up a domestic ecosystem, both in terms of providing incentives for manufacturing, but also in terms of providing local content requirements, which there are pros and cons to. Um, but one of the one of the impacts is that it does provide uh, more incentive for domestic manufacturing. And on the R&D side, right, uh, on the R&D academia side that we discussed earlier as well, if you were to apply that and think about that in the Indian context, you know, India doesn't spend that much on R&D yet, right? Um, but if it was to, and it's starting to build up, you know, the National Science Foundation, National Research Foundation, along the lines of the NSF in the US, there's efforts to get the private sector also to do more on R&D. So if you are a policymaker or a private sector corporate leader in India today, and you had to decide where to spend the limited amount of dollars 
that you can spend on R&D in the semiconductor context. How would you think about spending that? What would you focus on? Well, I think that the payoff from R&D is much higher in design than in manufacturing. Um, the, the manufacturing segment is just much harder to get into. Um, and so I, my sense is that for countries like India, which are entering the manufacturing business, the fabrication business, uh, there'll be a lot of incentive to do it in joint ventures with companies that can transfer some of the initial uh, technology so that the R&D doesn't have to be done uh, um, simultaneously uh, and replicate R&D that's been done elsewhere. In, in the design space, there's much more scope for smaller dollar value spend of R&D to have big impact in terms of business success. And so I think that the marginal dollar of R&D is probably better spent in design than in fabrication. And if we were to dig deeper, drill deeper into the design priority, let's say, where are gaps according to you on the global stage today on the design side? that India or Indian design firms, smaller design firms, could start to build a niche out in? Well, the good news on the design front is that as Moore's law slows and as it gets harder to shrink transistors smaller and smaller, design becomes more and more important every single year. Uh, so every chip company is leaning more heavily on design to provide performance improvements. And so if you look at a lot of the key trends in the chip industry, increasing chip content in automobiles, for example, or the effort to apply artificial intelligence to a whole variety of different use cases that will require not just more chips, but more chips that are specifically designed for uh, those specific use cases. And, you know, in some ways, we know some of the big companies that will play a big role, NVIDIA and AI, for example, it would be very hard to um, take market share from them. But the AI landscape is going to be a lot larger than NVIDIA. They're going to control the data center where they already have an almost monopolistic market share. But yeah. AI will also be processed on the edge of networks, in your phone, in your car, um, in industrial applications. And the market for chips in those applications is still very much in flux. And so if you were to link this back to the emphasis of most governments on building out fabs as well, would it then make sense for India to think about more specialized fabs instead of the more general larger fabs that often most governments want to build out? Well, I think there, there are several niches that we expect substantial demand growth over the um, coming decade or two. I, I look at power semiconductors, for example, that manage power supply, which would be very important as vehicle fleets electrify, as more batteries are deployed. You know, this is a sphere where we know demand is going to grow. We know new fabs need to be built. Um, and especially insofar as there are local content requirements for, uh, for cars and vehicles made in India, um, you know, this would seem to be a place where, uh, where there's a, a lot of scope for growth. So I, I do think specialty applications uh, do make a lot of sense to, uh, to look into. And as we, as we look into the future, auto and electronic devices and semiconductors or chips for these two sectors seem to be uh, already a priority in terms of where you might want to focus your efforts. But are there certain use cases that, you know, people are just not thinking about? For example, as we see this climate transition, you mentioned obviously EVs, but the climate transition will be much bigger and broader than just, let's say, the transition from IC vehicles to EVs. Is there something in that climate transition that could also offer opportunities for countries like India to focus on? Well, I, I think quite poss possibly so. And, you know, the, the energy transition is only going to be possible by using energy more efficiently, which will require deploying more semiconductors to monitor and to manage power supply in a whole suite of devices, not just in cars. This whole idea of a smart grid and the chips that might exactly. be required for a smarter, exactly. more decentralized grid could be an interesting opportunity. 
where again a use case exists within the country because India again has one of the largest grids in the world. And so that could be an interesting opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's That's just exactly that AI, what you were mentioning about NVIDIA earlier, what are other pieces of the AI space that you see countries like India possibly having an edge in? Well, I think we, we know what the training market's going to look like. NVIDIA is going to be at the center of training AI systems. But for inference, we'll run inference on all different types of systems, in cars, in phones, in industrial applications. And there we'll need probably different types of chips that are designed specifically for those use cases. Uh, and that market is still very much in flux. Uh, and so there's space for new entrants to win market share there. Yeah. Let me shift to the geopolitics piece here. Now, of course... What we've been talking about so far assumes that the geopolitical situation doesn't disrupt things too much. Of course, you have a little bit of maybe decoupling happening between the US and China and all of that. But beyond that, we are assuming right now that the industry will you know, continue as is. What's your outlook on the 5-10 year impact of geopolitics on this industry? Do we expect more black markets to develop? Do we expect more espionage to happen here, right, of industrial secrets? Do we expect new alliances uh, to be formed? You know, you've seen just recently the Vietnam-U.S. strategic partnership. You've seen countries in Africa that are important sources of rare earth elements becoming important. How do you see the impact of geopolitics over the next five, ten years on this industry? Well, I, I think the answer is that we should expect more bifurcation in supply chains between a China-focused supply chain on the one hand and a rest-of-the-world-focused supply chain on the other. That's been the trend of the past couple of years, but I think it has a long way to run, and we're going to end up with a much more uh, segmented uh, supply chain as a result. And there will be costs associated with that, no doubt, uh, but there will also be players that will benefit. You mentioned Vietnam as, as one obvious example. I think India is also, um, if it plays its cards right, has a chance to uh, win some of the market share that China will lose uh, as a result of, of this decoupling. And to get its cards right in this case would mean, you know, getting the manufacturing piece right? Or would it be, as we've been discussing, to really double down on some of the design, fabless driven um, strategy? I, you know, I think for, for India, both make sense. Design uh, is probably underestimated in importance in government circles, maybe even off, also in business circles. But it does make sense for India to push forward in, in both assembly and in manufacturing. Um, you know, the assembly picture, I think, is already coming uh, pretty clearly into view. Um, but as more assembly is done in India, it will make sense to begin to produce larger numbers of chips in India, too. Yeah. No, great. Uh, This has been extremely helpful. Very insightful as always, Chris. It's a pleasure speaking with you. And of course, if uh, travels bring you to India anytime soon, uh, please do let us know. And we'd love to uh, host you here as well. And uh, best of luck with all the great work you're doing uh, in this space. Well, thank you so much for having me. Enjoy the conversation. Take care, Chris.